We would like to acknowledge the traditional custodians of the land on which this podcast is produced, the Wajak Noongar people, and pay our respects to their elders, past, present and emerging. Courtney, we've been on a bit of a hiatus. We have. I think we've both been... Very busy yeah. recently. so And clearly um, people who've been listening to the podcast for a while will be aware that one of the reasons, the main reason that we've been busy is because we're both finishing PhDs at the moment. Yes, and we're both like coming towards the end of finishing as well. Yeah. yeah. I feel like you might be a bit closer to the end than me. Oh, I mean, we'll find out, right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, but we thought we've had some really amazing guests on recently and we've been talking about some fairly heavy topics and, you know, interesting topics mm. and we thought maybe we'll throw one in there where we just have a chat about some of our experiences um, through the journey of doing a PhD. Yeah, uh, I, th- I think a lot of people, um, particularly if you haven't been through a PhD or know someone that's done it, mm. it can be hard to visualise exactly what it is and, and the experiences that someone goes through yeah. with it. So. And, and for people mm. who might be thinking about it, um, you know, perhaps maybe you'll get something out of this because yeah. we'll, we'll sort of talk about some of the things that we found good and challenging and things that maybe if we knew ahead of time might have done differently. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so far. Yeah, so far. <laughs> I'm sure so, towards like when we actually like get the final mark within that six-month period, there'll be like so many more things that yeah. we could have learned as well. But, but we'll have to update this episode, <laughs> guaranteed. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. It's, um, yeah, so... There's probably not like a a real structure to this. We'll just have have a bit of a conversation about some of the things that commonly come up in PhDs Mm. that you have to think about Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, and then maybe, you know, just jump in with any um, experience you've got. Yeah, absolutely. Um, So the first thing I've got on my list here is ethics. Yes, yes. I I can quickly talk about my my, my ethics uh, experience, which is not much. I think I, I was very lucky in that my data already existed um, and my group had had that data for quite a long time. So for me, all I had to do was submit an amendment to say that I now want to be able to see this data, whereas everything else was already there. At least that okay. was at, at the beginning. So this is linked data you're talking That's about. That's right, yeah, yes. Okay. So I, I guess there are different processes when it comes to what type of data you're looking for. But, yeah, my, with my project in linked data, mm-hmm. um, that, that's all I had to do at the start. And then within, I think it was within about six months, um, I could then access it and, and use it. And okay. it's definitely one of the pros of using linked data. Like yeah. you have data from the beginning. Okay. Um, yeah. The, the overall project that your PhD is part of, so your PhD is a small part of a bigger That's project. Right. When they applied for the ethics or I guess wrote the research proposal for, for that overall mm-hmm. project, did they write it in such a way that your research questions fit in with the overall project? Yeah, yeah, yeah absolutely. So um, my my project's kind of under this big, uh, I stuff up saying this word, atherosclerotic um, disease project, and it's all about the epidemiological trends of any form of, of cardiovascular disease. So, you know, that covers a lot. Yeah, okay. <laughs> so it's very easy to get, like, niche projects out of that. That's good. Um yeah, so they, but, they purposely made it very broad. Okay. Yeah. The reason I ask that is because not, not for my project but other people mm. who, who I've spoken to have received data or there's data on you know at the university which they're part of a team that can access the data. Yeah. But then when they come to the, do their specific project and the specific research questions they have, they've had to go back and oh, get God. new approval yeah, because okay. it fell outside the terms of the original approval even though it's the same data. Right. But what they're wanting to use the data for is differed too much from the original projects. Oh, that yeah, that's interesting. So, yeah, yeah. no, I, I didn't have that problem because, okay. yeah, my, kind of my two dis- diseases of atrial fibrillation and heart failure very much fall into yeah. the, the broad aim of the, the project. Okay. Um, so that hasn't been too bad. That's good. Yeah. Because, yeah. Yeah. yeah, it's it's one of those things that you talk to academics and they sort of roll their eyes. Yeah. 
But then if you talk to people at the health department, they will say absolutely that's the rules and this is how it works. Yeah. And, and I think like everyone's experience with ethics is, is quite different. Mm. And some poor PhD students have a very hard time with ethics. Yeah. Um, I think I'm one of the lucky ones. I don't yeah. With your ethics, because you would have had to have gotten your own one for your project. Yes. So you would have been through the whole So my project, my project has some similarities to yours but differs to yours yeah. um, a bit as well. So... When I came into the project, there's two there's two stages to my project. There's a stage where we recruited participants. Yep. So we actually have a cohort rather than whole of population data. We actually went into the prisons and recruited them. Mm. So we needed to get approval for that part of the project and the survey we used, you know, answer all the risk questions to make sure we're not putting people at unnecessary risk and all that sort of stuff. Then once that process was done, we then had to seek approval. Those participants gave us um, permission to access their linked data. Right. We then had to seek permission to get the linked data and get a separate approval for that to mm. so go through the data linkage branch and the uh, research governance office, et cetera, at the Department of Health. I was lucky enough to walk into the project after we'd received approval for the first nice. part. Yep. <laughs> so I just came on as an interviewer and I was recruiting um, people in the prison. And then I inherited the administration of the project right at the time when we were in the process of applying for the ethics for mm. the linked data, for mm-hmm. the administrative data. So I did sort of handle the back end of that. Someone yep. had done the first initial stages of that, um, but I, I had to deal with the health department and the mm. ethics How did you find committee. it? Is that okay? Uh, yeah, overall not too bad. Yeah. Uh, I think for- it just takes a long time. Fortunately, I'm working, as I know you are, with a fairly experienced team yeah. who have done this sort of thing many times before. Yeah. So I wasn't required to write a lot of it from scratch. Mm, that's I could good. Ad- adapt previous yeah, nice. um, applications. I think the challenging thing has been they've migrated from a sort of paper-based system to the RGS, RGS Research yeah. Governance System, I think it's yeah, called. Yeah. And so there's been a few challenges that I think anybody who uses that system would agree it's mm-hmm. a bit quirky. Yeah. Um, Sometimes it's got its you, own unique personality. Well, sometimes you think you've filled things in and submitted them when all you've done is filled them in. You yeah. haven't submitted them because there's an extra button or an extra page you need to go to to do that. Mm-hmm. But I think once you get your head around that, once you've done it a couple of times and been frustrated waiting for a response and not getting one, yeah. you realise what you need to do. Um, so, yeah, I have I have probably spent more time on that than I would have liked. Mm. But Overall. I think it's a good skill, though, in research because, yeah, I guess that's something that I'm I'm kind of lacking. So mm-hmm. although, you know, an amendment, a paper-based amendment is very easy because it's yep. all you're basically saying is I want to add this person, um, this is why yeah. I should have access, then you're all, all good to go. Um, and I haven't had any mm. other experiences other than that. So We should probably yeah. clarify as well that... We're, we're talking about one research ethics committee, oh, which absolutely. is the Department of Health. Yeah. Obviously, that each university has its own mm-hmm. and you usually have to go through their process yeah. often first, I think. Yeah, so there'll be like a university ethics, um, yeah. there'll be a Department of Health ethics. That's right. Um, you know, if you're going beyond WA, there's Australia-wide ethics that you yeah. need to uh, take into account and state-based and then, you know, there's like South Metro and East Metro. That's yeah, right. there's, there's so many and different There's an forms. Aboriginal ethics committee that's separate to all those yeah. if, you, if you're yeah. dealing with a lot of Aboriginal participants. Um, so there's all these layers yeah. and obviously the Aboriginal ethics committee has to be standalone because the issues are different. Mm, so mm-hmm. that's a necessity. Uh, obviously, the they're key stakeholders and they Absolutely. have certain considerations that we have to th- think about. Yeah. Um, whereas a lot of the other ones, I think the mainstream, if you like, ethics committees, like the mm-hmm. university ones and the Department of Health ones, they're starting, I think, to recognise each other's approvals a bit more. Oh, that's good. Yeah. yeah. So um, I know, I think at the UWA mm-hmm. HREC, Human yep. Re- Research Ethics Committee, they're now, I think they're now saying that if you get the Department of Health's approval, then they'll recognise that. Ah, oh, that's good. So you don't have to d- duplicate those efforts, yeah. I believe. But yeah, yeah, okay. Yeah, I'd that's really good. Happy I think for people to email and say something different. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Again, like where this is not our area, but we've kind yeah. of had to go through our small experience of ethics. That's right. Um, I think there's also, there's some 
states that recognise other states' approvals yeah. as well. Um, and I think Commonwealth yeah. and state now yeah. are starting to interface a bit better as well. So hopefully the red tape gets less rather than more yeah. because it has sort of gotten a bit out of control. Yeah, from, a little bit. Yeah. yeah. So, yeah, hopefully there's some smart decisions there. But mm. I think the reason I wanted to raise ethics for people listening who might be considering a PhD is that you often see PhD opportunities advertised Mm -hmm. and there'll be funding built in. So someone would have got a big grant and as part of that grant they would have got one or two PhD scholarships funded. So Mm -hmm. they've applied for that amount of funding, you know, three and a half years or whatever of funding for the student. And they'll say that the project has ethics approval, has data, etc. Now, if you haven't done a PhD, you might not think too much about that. But I can tell you that I would definitely choose a project that has all of that stuff approved oh, already. me too. Rather yeah. than going into something where you're responsible for doing it all yourself. Yeah. Because you've got enough going on doing a PhD, just getting your head around what you're supposed to be doing to analyse the data and write your results up and Absolutely. whatnot without having to add a, a layer of, you know, complexity yeah. from And I, I think that's where some PhD projects can really blow out in terms of time because it, mm. it does take a long time to get ethics. Yeah. Like, and it, like as, I think as it should because it is yeah. a very important part of research. Um, but if you're then actively recruiting people um, yeah. and then you have to analyse and stuff, that those projects can go up to, you know, six, seven years, yeah. it, particularly if you're starting from the beginning. And, so, yeah. And it really is about, it's really about forward planning. Yeah. Um, just, you know, having people involved who are experienced and have been through the process before who can tell you, right, mm. this is what you need to do um, because you will come up against things that surprise you mm. that people who've been in research for a while will say, well, that's pretty common. Yeah. You know, I could have told you that. Yeah, absolutely. So it's really, it's really worth doing your, doing your homework a bit and yeah. talking to people who know what they're but, talking about. But having said that, you know, this doesn't apply to me, um, but there, there would be some people out there who have a, a brilliant idea for mm. a project and mm. really want to do that and there won't be anything that exists um, at the time of that. And, you know, if you do think that that idea of yours is important, then I guess the best thing to do is find the group that will yeah. be able to support you or the closest thing to your idea that does yeah. exist um, because then they can help you through that ethics right. process and things like that. But and, yeah, yeah. And, and you've got to view a PhD as a stepping stone. To, oh, to, yeah. the, to the rest of your career. I think that's something as well that a lot of people kind of get confused about. Like a PhD is not the end. Yeah, <laughs> it's the beginning. It's yeah, it's, it's the, beginning. the beginning, yeah. Um, and, and I guess like that's kind of what I get told a lot is like mm. I'm at the end and it's like, no, I like still have no idea what I'm doing. Yeah. <laughs> like this is very much the beginning. It's, yeah. not, it's not the end of a that's career it. or anything like that. It's, yeah, you're yeah. learning new skills to build your career that's it yeah yeah okay um so yeah so those are the key kind of messages yeah for, for ethics and it's obviously it's not a sexy area it's no, quite it's a it can be quite a dry boring area at yeah. times but it's does, that quite doesn't philosophical philosoph- philosophical philosophical that's yeah, it yeah, <laughs> yeah. Um, but the theory it, behind it's just, kind of interesting but. just because it's not that sexy area doesn't mean that it's not important Absolutely. and when you see the makeup of ethics committees there are a broad range of people on them representing different points of view Um, and so, yeah, they are quite important. They are, absolutely. Um, So, yeah, the next thing I had on my list was data. Mm. I don't know if you say data or data. I I don't know. Okay. We'll find out when I say it. (laughs) (laughs) But now I don't want to say it. (laughs) Yeah, that's fine. I'm glad I could um, add to your anxiety. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) So this is uh, the reason I put this one on the list is because I know you've had some fairly interesting experiences with your data. Yes. Yes, I have. Um, so I guess initially with my project, um, all of the data, there you go, data for me, yeah. um, all of the data that I had um, obviously existed and it was there. Um, but throughout my PhD, it kind of got a bit old. Mm-hmm. Um, and unfortunately, that's that's what happens to a lot of research is it just gets old and mm-hmm. people, um, it becomes increasingly difficult to publish because, you know, it's not technically relevant so anymore. Journals want the up-to-date. They want, yeah, they want the data. most recent year you've got. Mm. Um, so uh, with my data, I had to get an update um, of the, the data linkage uh, kind of cohort that I have. Um, and 
Essentially what happened there is I, I applied for an extra couple of years of, of, of data to use and um, I got that back uh, and then I figured out that the data that was linked together was wrong um, and it wasn't linked 100% the same way that uh, my previous data set was was done. So I was getting, I was rerunning the same same kind of like statistical analysis and I was getting totally different numbers uh, and that took a very long time to fix. So I had some, some fairly big delays in terms of that, um, which meant that I basically couldn't do anything in mm-hmm. that time. Um, you know, I could write my lit review. Yeah. Um, I could read stuff. Okay. Uh, I could kind of plan future analyses, uh, theory-based rather than like trial and error, which is yeah. kind of what I tend to do. Um, yeah, so that it was a very interesting process to go through that. And mm-hmm. I, that's the, the data cleaning process is incredibly important yeah. like, with whatever data you get because okay. um, it helps you figure out those mistakes. If so, there are some. so that's your first kind of activity to work out whether your data are, are what you it's expected. Correct, and yeah. correct, yeah. Okay. And what, what does data cleaning involve? Oh, so many things. Uh, so <laughs> I guess uh, I, I can point out some of the, the kind of common things that happen with your data, particularly in terms of hospitalization data, and that is um, the dates that are assigned to each record. Uh, so I guess one of the first steps that I always do is just to make sure that the date of admission for that person going to hospital is actually before the date that they get discharged. Mm-hmm. So otherwise they're kind of there for a negative amount of time and you'd be surprised at how often that happens. Yeah. Like, it, yeah, it's it's crazy how many records you get rid of just because they got discharged before they were admitted. Yeah. Um, so it's kind of, it's looking through the data and seeing whether all of the, the information that's there is valid mm-hmm. and whether it's reliable um, and not every piece of data you collect is going to yeah. fit into that and you kind of have to get rid of it. Yeah. Okay. Um, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, fortunately for people listening yeah. um, who haven't got experience with linked data, we've got one of the leading linked data experts working at the school, we do. Professor David Prane, yeah. and he runs, I think, two courses, an, um, an introduction to linked data analysis and, yeah. a, and an advanced linked data analysis course. And part, part of the um, curriculum, if you like, goes through these sorts of issues, mm-hmm. trying mm-hmm. to find the glitches and the, the problems with linked data. Um, yeah, they're happen. very good courses. Yeah, um, I've done the introduction. I haven't done the advanced yet. Ah, uh, yeah. So I, I was sneaky with the advanced uh, uh, course. Um, I've done the introduction one, um, and I've taught that one as well. Mm-hmm. Um, but the the advanced class, I um, I managed to help out with the tutorials. So I've yep. never done the course, but okay. um, basically the deal was I'll help out with the tutorials and then I can sit in on the lectures and just yeah. get it for free. <laughs> and, and I think so, yeah. the good news for people who aren't in WA that might be listening is that for the first time I think this year that introduction course has been offered online. Mm, and mm-hmm. I, think, I think I'll be involved in supporting the Stata users for that Oh, one, yeah, nice. For some of the tutorial exercises. Yeah, that sounds um, good. So, yeah, so a little plug there for that course. Yeah. I, didn't, I didn't plan that. <laughs> no, neither, but it was, it was a very good course. Uh, yeah. yeah. I, I learned so much from it, particularly when it comes to linked data. Yeah. Yeah. And, and look, I think the data topic also sort of brings us back around to the kind of planning and considerations that you've got to have mm. when you it's take on a PhD. It's planning, isn't it? Because administrative data takes time to get, mm. you know, even if you've got all your approvals and whatnot, um, the data linkage branch has a, uh, certain capacity that they yeah. can work at. They work have at. a very small team and there's a, a lot of team. projects that they're trying to link yep. together. And and they're, they're part of the Department of Health, yep. which is under quite a lot of stress at the moment, yep. you know, um, trying to mitigate potential COVID issues and yep. all, sorts. all sorts of other things. So people often get pulled out of that, that data linkage branch to go to other parts of the department. And so you just have to be aware of that. You mm. know? Mm-hmm. So if you've got a project where the data have been obtained and they're on the server, that's great. But if you don't, then you've got to factor that into, you know, your timing, your timeline. You're not going to get it tomorrow. It's not going to come next week. (laughs) No, it'll be like six months. Six months a year, depending on the complexity of the data sets you're after. Yeah, And that's like, yeah, that's where kind of the planning comes in. And I think that's something that I I wish I was a bit more aware of, of having 
because I, I knew from the beginning that I'd have my data straight away because mm-hmm. the other thing was is like the amendment that I did was actually through my master's. I'm using the same data okay. for my PhD as I did for my master's. So um, I had access since the mm-hmm. very beginning. Um, so I didn't think about what happens if mm. I needed more data yeah. and what to do during that time. And I I wish I had done some sort of like published lit review or methods paper mm-hmm. or, or something like that like during that time. Yeah, yeah, because, yeah. Yeah, yeah, I could see that being a good use of my time. And then, yeah. you know, um, with PhDs at the moment, at least it's all about how many papers you get published. So yeah. it helps. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I had a... Uh, quite a long way to get my data because mm. I'm the first person using those data, you yeah. know, for this project. That's exciting though. Yeah. Yeah, because it's nice to see it. <laughs> it also means I'm the one who's got to go through those teething problems. And, yeah. You know, it's sort of taken, um, you know, roughly three years mm. for me to get the data, which obviously blows the timing of your PhD out mm-hmm. a little bit. Because technically we're only meant to take three years. Yeah. Technically. Three to four, isn't three it? Three to four. Sort of a bit yeah. flexible. Mine's going to take closer to five probably. Yeah. Um, but, you know, it's been a learning process and I've been fortunate to have other things going on at the same time and mm. I did manage to get a review paper oh, as yeah, part nice. of the PhD published. So, you know, and I, ha- <clears throat> I have had survey data to, to be analysing as well. Oh, yeah. But <clears throat> those survey data are most valuable in combination with the linked data. So, yeah, mm. so it's been put a bit of a handbrake on things but, you know, things are happening now, which is good. Yeah, yeah. Um, Stress levels are going down, but also oh, up good. at the yes, same time. Yes, yes. <laughs> down, down in terms of not worrying about not getting the data, but up in terms of now I've got to actually, actually use it. Actually do things, yeah. Yeah. Because <laughs> it's, it's so easy to just like put a delay on things that yeah. you're doing. Like, oh, I'll just wait until this happens. Uh, at that's least it. that's what I do. Um, yeah. Yeah, and then it comes around and you're like, oh, my God, I've got so much to do. <laughs> that's, that's it. And it, it can be yeah. overwhelming. Yeah, um, and I think that's why we do PhDs is to understand the process and go through those emotions and yeah. learn from them and know what to expect. Yeah, yeah. And you've got people holding your hand yeah. if you've got good supervision. Yeah, which I'm lucky yeah. enough. To I think do. both of us do. Yeah. yeah. So yeah, so yeah, that, that's actually quite a nice segue. So I've got on my list here supervision team. Yeah. Do, yeah. do you want to talk me through your team and how many people there are and what they're? Yeah. So this is something when I talk to other PhD students, people kind of freak out with the number of people, number of supervisors that I have, mm-hmm. um, because I have four, okay. uh, which is quite a lot. Um, I think I think most people have like two. Okay. Maybe maybe one to three, um, mm-hmm. but I haven't met anyone else that has four, um, and there's a reason why I have four. Um, so I have uh, I don't know what all of their like titles are okay. because I know them on a on a casual level. Yeah. So I've got um, Tom Riffer, Siobhan Hickling, um, Ian Lee, and Joe Hung. Mm-hmm. Um, Joe Hung is a clinician, mm-hmm. and for my project, it's very important to have. The, the clinical perspective, uh, particularly because my background's not in anything cardiovascular related, having that that kind of person to say these are the, the implications of what you're actually doing um, mm-hmm. and kind of what the outcomes mean uh, and have those discussions is really important. Um, Ian Lee is economics. So mm-hmm. part of my project is to do some sort of economic aspect um, and he's going to be really valuable for that. Uh, Siobhan and Tom are kind of two people that are my, like, main supervisors. So Tom was initially my main supervisor and then that um, was transferred to Siobhan mm-hmm. uh, about a year ago. Um, and both of them kind of help with not only, like, the clinical aspect and the reviewing and all that kind of stuff, Um but they're very much support on the student side uh, for me. So very big team can be very difficult to kind of make everyone agree. <laughs> so the good thing is like the total team is is an odd number. Mm. So I get to, to decide what happens in the end um, because it, it'll be whatever I end up choosing. Um but it, it can be difficult to kind of get everyone in the same room at the same time, all discussing the same things. And, yep. and what's kind of ended up happening towards the end is different people have different levels of understanding of what I'm doing. Uh, and that's okay by me. At the start, that would have been terrible because I didn't know what I was doing. But now, because I kind of 
um, towards the end, I kind of know what my project's all about. Um, that works for me. Yep. But a lot of PhD students kind of find that scary. <laughs> yeah. 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 No, I've had similar feedback because yeah. like you, I've got four yeah. supervisors. Um, so I think yours are all based here in WA, right? Yes. Yeah. So two out of my four are in the eastern states, mm. mm-hmm. uh, one in New South Wales and one in uh, Victoria. And so they've been under the stay-at-home orders and all that sort of stuff for oh, a lot of yeah, the of last course. few months. And um, one, one of them has young kids yep. and, you know, it's homeschooling and that sort of thing. So there's been um, some sort of, uh, I guess, challenges in terms of people having time yeah. to sort of digest preliminary results and that sort of stuff. Um, but um, I must say overall it hasn't really helped me back because – because I've got four, mm. I can get feedback from someone yep. at, at each stage of the that, process. That is the good thing is like you will get feedback from at least one of them. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah. Um, and similar to you, Ian, Lee, mm. um, they're all professors, my yeah. supervisors of some, of some level. I should really know that. It's just yeah. things I don't remember. Yeah. yeah. I, I can't remember exactly associate professor, professor. Yeah. You know. And like during uh, my PhD time, people have upgraded a lot, as yeah, well. A lot yeah. of people get promotions and, yeah. and whatnot. Um, but... Yeah, so my, my principal um, supervisor is David Preen. Yep. Um, and he kind of leads the projects that I've been involved with that I'm now doing my PhD on. Mm-hmm. Uh, so we've got a long-term relationship and he's the one I would speak to the most often. Um, and then the guy that was kind of leading that project with David and has been leading that project with David over the years is a guy called Stuart Kinner who's mm-hmm. over at the University of Melbourne and, and a lot of other institutions. He's got a very long list of... Yeah. Um, affiliations. Uh, so, yeah, so those guys really have the prison health knowledge because my cohort was generated from a prison. And then Rebecca McKetton is mm-hmm. a, um, I think primarily like she, she looks at methamphetamine use, um, not necessarily prison as such, just methamphetamine use in the community and, and um, the associated issues, you know, with mental health and traumatic injury and, and the other sort of related issues. So she's a real drug expert Mm -hmm. so she sort of adds that to the mix Mm -hmm. she's got that real uh, um, alcohol and other drug kind of focus um, which is really beneficial for my project because I'm primarily looking at methamphetamine as a as an exposure and seeing what happens because it's you know it's a big issue in the prisons and then Ian Lee is obviously the health economist Mm -hmm. and um, because we're using hospital data and uh, other health service data there's the opportunity to have a look at the costs impact of some of these outcomes that are happening and, and where we might be able to save some money in the future if we mm-hmm. do things differently. And he's been valuable for giving me advice on how to do that and yep. what that should look like and obviously, you know, bearing in mind the limitations of the data and, you know, what's possible with it. So, yeah, it's good, you know, a lot, there there are sometimes differences of opinion yep. about approaches because obviously you've got somebody coming from an alcohol and other drug focus and then others who have got a more epidemiological public health focus and sometimes the the issues get framed differently Mm. you know they would like to frame them in different ways Mm -hmm. but I think overall you reach a bit of a compromise and yeah you know hopefully something that's useful I think it overall makes things better because the more perspectives that you can kind of take into account I feel like the the writing and the the ideas that's improve. yeah and I think I think the the main the key take home is that you're with people with epi backgrounds, it's really just that your methods are sound. Yeah, and, absolutely. And, and can be replicated by people in the future. Yeah. So if you're really – and I think that's the thing I've found probably the biggest challenge is communicating things specifically enough and clearly enough, you know, what I'm doing and why I'm doing it. Yep. And so that's the feedback at the, at the start of the PhD, mm-hmm. you know. And you can't just like do a method and then – say that your reason is because someone told you to do it that way. No. No, <laughs> you actually got, have to understand why you're doing, you're doing what you're it, doing. There's a precedent for it or there's some good theoretical reason for it. Yeah, uh, yeah. That, that's all part of the learning process. It is, yeah. I actually like that aspect. Yeah, me too. You know, yeah. Um, but, yeah, I, I, uh, yeah, I'm very grateful for the team that I've got oh, supervising and, you yeah. know, it's obviously taking a bit longer than we probably would have hoped at the start yeah. but so yeah, does everything it, though. really worth worthwhile in the end you know mm. yeah and we'll have some good um literature out there for people to hopefully benefit from absolutely um so yeah that's sort of on my list here i'm i'm sort of hijacking this session no please i'm gonna to i'm gonna come in at the end with okay. my questions i think that'll it'll work well okay <laughs>
<laughs> so I've got here uh, developing research topics and aims. Ah, yes. Yeah. Yes. Because um, this is something that I've, you know, been working at and hopefully getting better at. Yeah. Yeah. It's it's interesting. Um, I, I think from an outside perspective from people who haven't done, hasn't done research, um, a lot of the time, at least this is what I thought when I was going in, mm. um, like when you start research, you should already have your questions formed. Yeah. Like you should already know what your project's about. You should already know what the aim is. And to be honest, you know, I'm I'm technically under a month out from when I'm meant to submit. I'm going to get my, my main draft done by then, but mm. um, I'm still working on mm. my aims. Like right. it's crazy how long it takes to mm. actually get them correct for, yeah. for what you're doing. Um, but... I think with the flexibility of, of linked data and and the project and the amount of data that I have, it's very easy to ask a lot of questions. Yeah. And there's a lot of little rabbit holes that I can go down. So, yep. yeah. I've gone down many of those rabbit holes because yeah. I've got a lot of data and I'm the first one analysing a lot yeah. of Yeah. Oh, you have so many. So <sighs> there's like... lots. And so that's one thing that I'm having to be kind of a bit more conscientious about mm, is mm-hmm. is being more explicit about my aims right before I start analysing the data yep. because otherwise you can just analyse loads of data and see, oh, there's a significant finding yeah. here and here. And then you also don't use it as well. Well, yeah, that's like, it. It's, you don't. Yeah. And so that's one of one of my supervisors is very big on that, sending us like a skeleton of a, of a manuscript through that's yep. literally just the... A, couple, a few dot points in the intro and a, and a few dot points with some mm. aims at the end of, mm. of mm-hmm. that. And then obviously, you know, a brief methods about which data you might use to answer the, yep. you know, to meet the research aims. Um, but, yeah, I guess the first thing I would give, the first bit of advice I would give anyone, you know, at that stage is just do a lit review. To oh, start yeah. With on, on the, you know, if, if it's a specific topic mm-hmm. that you're wanting to do a paper on. Do a lit review first. Figure out what's what's out there. Yeah. Yeah. And a lot of papers also tend to have one or two sentences about how their paper could be improved Mm. um, or what's missing from their paper um, within the literature. And even just like jotting all of those down, um, that gave me a lot of ideas on on what to write papers actually about. Um, Yeah. And if if you are... You know, when you're searching for the literature, if you come across a fairly recent systematic review, meta-analysis mm, mm-hmm. in your area, that's like gold. Oh, yeah. Because they do a lot of that work for you. <laughs> yeah. They'll and they, and they'll, they literally, yeah, they literally tell you what's missing. Yeah. You go, oh, I can answer this question. Let's so do that. <laughs> that is, you know, key is seeing if there's any systematic reviews mm, mm-hmm. or meta-analyses in, that area, in your area because yeah. that will provide you a pretty quick kind of overview of what needs to be done. Absolutely. Hi, we hope you're enjoying this episode of The Meaning of Health. Just a quick reminder that you can email us at meaningofhealth@outlook.com or tweet us at healthmeanswhat. And if you have a minute and you've enjoyed listening to this episode or any of the other episodes, it'd be great if you could go and rate and review us wherever you get your podcasts. It helps other people find us. Now back to the show. I had some uh, some interesting advice. So I guess my experience is a little bit different to yours in terms of like writing out the skeleton manuscript. Um, I think with my project it was a little bit more exploratory because mm-hmm. we didn't really know, one, what was out there already um, and what I would find. Um, and compared to like all of the other advice I've gotten in previous um degrees and and other people I've talked to um one of my my kind of people in my group says write the abstract first yeah right? I've had that same advice yeah whereas yeah. for me like everything previously it's always yeah. like write your abstract and, last and I've had that advice at the same time from someone else yeah yeah, yeah. and so I've now learned um to write the abstract first and because of that it makes asking the question a bit easier because then when you're doing the analysis, you go, does this analysis actually answer that original question? And yeah. if it doesn't, why doesn't it? 
and should I include it because of that? And then yeah, okay. you update the abstract and then you can update your analysis and it's okay. kind of like this thing that you're working together with. I'm not sure whether I like it yet or not. Yeah. It kind of confuses me. Um, yeah, but yeah. there's been some benefits yeah. writing it first. I think that's where so because I've made the mistake of sending through preliminary tables with results. So I've run some analyses. Oh, yeah, same. I've sent them through. So I said, oh, do these look any good? Yeah. And they're like, what are your aims? I yeah. can't tell you if your results look good if you don't tell me what you're aiming to do. Yeah. And so at a minimum, they, their strong advice is get just do, bullet points, just bullet points for, with your aims yeah. so we know but what But also they can change as well. Yeah, like, of course. It's just like you need to yeah. have something to answer so then you're kind of following the right direction so and you then can you see, find something different. Then, you can yeah. see does do these results actually answer the questions yeah. that you're aiming to investigate? So, yeah, yeah. so it's, th- those are all interesting um, learnings and things mm. that, you know, hopefully as time goes on I'll get better at that and more mm. efficient at that process. Yeah. Because that's, that's the thing that... It's real slow at the start. Yeah, I've been frustrated by how long it's taken me to do certain things and yeah. wade through data. And the amount and, of tables that I've created that, yeah. like, I'm like, not going to put in my thesis. It's yeah. ridiculous. It's like, a lot of tables. There's so there's so much data that I've got that like it's it's interesting and yeah. you know I could use it, um, yeah. but I'm not going to yeah. because it doesn't fit in with what I'm actually and, doing. And I think that's where the having the aims limits the amount of unnecessary yeah. tables you produce. Absolutely. I think because you're like right, these are the actual tables I need. Yeah. Let's focus on getting those looking good. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. Okay. Um, so next on my. Um, shopping list. <laughs> <laughs> Which is what a PhD is. It's basically like a to-do list. <laughs> <laughs> is uh, producing and communicating your results. Oh, this is my favourite bit. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> so although like I, I, I do love going through the rabbit holes with data, like I love that process and I like doing the statistical analyses and then figuring out why my statistical analysis is wrong. Um, I really enjoy that. Uh, the communicating bit. I think is the bit that I want to ultimately do a yeah. lot of um, and it makes me very happy. But there are so many people in research that don't know how to communicate yeah. and it's it's unfortunate because they do so many wonderful, wonderful things and a lot of those ideas just don't get out there. Okay. Yeah. Do you want to break down the aspects of communication? Obviously there's written communication, uh, verbal yeah. um, and then, you know, graphic so yeah. What, so, which of those do you sort of see yourself in? Uh well, I will. I will start by saying I hate posters. Um, academic posters suck. Okay. Uh, <laughs> so during your PhD, I guess like there's there's a number of things that you kind of learn about. Um, one of the the best things of a PhD is going to conferences, uh, which I don't think we have been able to fully experience. Yep. Um, but conferences are a perfect time to learn how to communicate and network. Um, but then there is the downside of academic posters. Uh, so mm-hmm. there's your oral presentations, um, the the posters, which is kind of part graphics, part written. Um, you have your journal articles mm-hmm. as well and then any other casual um, written or, or verbal, like even this podcast kind of counts yeah. towards all of your communication within your PhD and beyond that. Um, yeah, I think... It's definitely something to get around when you do your PhD. It's mm-hmm. not just about doing your project. Okay. So you're talking yeah. about, so writing the manuscript is one part of it. Yeah. And so and you, I feel, I get the impression you enjoy the actual presenting and the the, yes. verb, the verbal communication. Yeah, 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 absolutely. Hate writing. It's okay. terrible. <laughs> what about your graphic skills? Like there's a lot of innovative <sighs> papers where they produce a graphic that just gets the whole mm. result out there in an easy to digest yeah. way that a lot of people can understand. I'm still working at that. I don't so really have I. those skills. No, um, neither. I think there needs to be like a, and I'm sure it does exist. I just haven't looked into it, but it's almost data visualization. Yeah. Um, it's such a valuable skill when communicating your research. Yeah. If you can get something that kind of captures your audience and looks pretty and shows your message very clearly in one figure, like it's, that's yeah. it. That's I, what you want to do. I, f- I feel like the media do a good job of it. Yes. Um, you know, places like the ABC and uh, even, you know, the Australian Institute of Health and Welfare has some pretty useful graphics, infographics mm. I think they call them. Um, so, yeah, that's definitely an area for me to improve in and to learn a bit more about because I, I feel like that's one way of 
communicating your results to a wider range of people, you know, mm. people who maybe don't understand the stats. And, Absolutely. You know, yeah. I think sort of there is there is one um, uh, person who's submitted their PhD recently, um, Emma Hayes, who mm-hmm. their actual thesis um, is, is uh, I would describe it as beautiful because the graphics that they've got in there is, is just, it's really, really good. Mm-hmm. Um, and her project was on Indigenous health. Okay. Um, within the rheumatic heart disease space. And she worked in collaboration with some Indigenous artists mm-hmm. to create and translate her research. Oh, and, oh, it's it's amazing. It, yeah. it really is um, what she's managed to do in her in her thesis. And have, but having that as a resource mm. would also be fantastic. And, you know, obviously nothing to do with mine is to do with Indigenous um, uh translation or anything like that. So I'm not going to get someone from an Indigenous group to create artwork for for my project. That doesn't make sense. But having someone to help you create good graphics, Mm -hmm. that would be invaluable. Yeah. Yeah. It'd be a good skill to know. Yeah, okay. Interesting. I definitely don't know it. I'm still using Excel to create my graphs. So, yeah. Yeah. Look, I think think the the focus at universities and research institutes is on the data and the results and and that sort of thing. Um, And obviously experienced academics for the most part, that's where their skill sets are. That's what they've been doing their their whole careers. But, yeah, it is a bit of a a new world out there Mm -hmm. and we're all competing for airspace, you know, airspace. Yeah, yeah good enough. You, um, you know, there's obviously messages, you know, misinformation, yep. um, correct information. There's all this stuff getting out there on social media platforms and even in the mainstream media. Yep. And I feel like, you know, if we want if we want our, our research to cut through and be useful, mm. we, we need to learn how to do it better than them. Absolutely. Or, or as good as them as good, to compete, yeah. you know. I agree. Uh, I, I also think we might be a little bit biased as well um, because obviously both of us, like to communicate, mm. um, you know, we are running this podcast. Yeah. You know, not many PhD <laughs> students do that. Yeah, that's true. Uh, <laughs> yeah. um, so I think we are a little bit biased and I don't think every student and researcher will agree. Um, mm-hmm. When I was doing a bit of uh, Googling uh, this morning about some of the questions that I've got to ask uh, yeah. afterwards, um, one of the things that kind of came up is in terms of translation of your research, uh, a lot of people don't feel like it's worth it um, because a lot of people just aren't going to understand. And, right. and this was specific to someone who did a, a PhD in maths mm-hmm. um, and they basically said if you don't have more than high school level, they're not going to understand what their, their project's on. Okay. Um, so I can see a lot of people kind of thinking that it's not worth it to translate it to general public, to, right. to news media and all that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. I completely disagree. I think anything can be translated. Yeah. Um, anything anything worthwhile should yeah. get out there um, and should be able to be explained. I, th- um, I think yeah. that's one of the key signs that somebody knows the area really well is their ability to simplify it. Absolutely. Because I think if you don't fully understand your area, it's very yeah. difficult for you to simplify it. Um, I agree. For people to understand but I think in working in health probably helps as well because what, oh, we, yeah. what we do is relevant to almost everybody absolutely you know because we all have health and health yeah. issues and, we are yeah. our life and uh, yeah <laughs> you, know, you know yeah I mean even people working in the Aboriginal health space there are certain learnings there that you know we we all have contact with Aboriginal mm. people and you know absolutely um, that sort of thing it's so part of it helps our understanding of some of the stuff they might be going through just as it helps our understanding of people with mental illness and, yep. you know, all that sort of stuff that we might be researching. So Absolutely. it touches everybody. It does, yeah. Yeah. Um, so this probably is going back a step or so. Mm. Um, but, yeah, it's something that I think a lot of PhD students have to learn to deal with is digesting and incorporating feedback, you know, <laughs> particularly from supervisors, you know. Ah, uh, uh, I, I will... Uh, Tell a story here. Yeah. Um, I get a lot of feedback on most of my work um, and that has not changed throughout the three and a half years. Mm. Um, I, I, yeah, I get, I get a significant amount of feedback and at mm-hmm. the start that was very hard to deal with because I guess with my previous experiences, um, I, a lot of like 
my assignments and stuff, you'd kind of get like a couple of comments and then you get a mark and you kind of process that that mark is, is good or bad or whatever. And if it sucks, then you'll go ask someone else and they'll mm. be like, no, it's fine. And yeah, so um, the amount of feedback that you get is pretty crazy at the start, yeah. at least in my experience. And there are a number of times where that kind of makes you feel like you're not good enough because right. like your work's terrible. What's the point of even doing it if they basically rewrite the whole thing for you? Yeah. Um, but it's a learning curve and mm. the feedback is there for a reason and it just makes you so much better at the end. Yeah. Because yeah. I think one of the things that, I, that when I first led a, a manuscript that got published mm. was how many rounds of iterations there were <laughs> yeah, to, to so adapt many. and edit and rewrite sections of the manuscript. Yeah. And organisation of that yeah. is also key. And we're talking, you know, 20 to 30 yep. goes at it to yep. get it into its final state. And then that's just to go to the independent reviewers, you know. Yeah, the, the and then review. you have to review them and edit again. And, and you might get, I've heard stories of people who've submitted papers to The Lancet yeah. that are, that will get published or have been accepted since and they've got 12 pages of comments from the Jeez, reviewers at the oh, Lancet. Yeah. And that's after they've put in however many hours, tens of to hours write writing paper. the paper in the first place. Yeah. And these are people with 25, 30 years' experience leading these papers. So us as PhD students, I feel like it's just an introduction to what's to come. Mm-hmm. You know, don't, don't take it personally that mm. you've got like 30 or 40 comments uh, for, yep. on different sections of your paper from it's the way you know, it your supervisors because be. that's what happens. You're not meant to know at the as start. As an academic, yeah. Yeah. And even super experienced academics will sometimes not be up to date with the, all of the latest literature, you know, and some of their co-authors will say, look, I was reading this article last week that just mm-hmm. came out, so that comment you've made there might not be accurate anymore, mm-hmm. or, you know. And that, that's why we have teams of people working on papers and they're not single author papers usually. Yeah, is, yeah, definitely. Know, to incorporate the benefit of everyone's knowledge. Um, and I guess like uh, the other thing to be aware of is that like every manuscript goes through that. So, yeah, like my first one I think had 30-odd revisions um, mm-hmm. overall. Um, I have one currently... I think it went through like 15 versions and then I submitted it to a journal, um, edited that to the mm-hmm. reviews, got rejected. Mm-hmm. It's been to four other journals mm-hmm. now, each one with its own revisions. Yeah. So there's two to three revisions for each journal, um, yeah. you know, and it's things like word count and stuff like that as well. Um, sure. And but, each yeah. journal has its own format, so that uh, requires reformatting. Yeah, yeah, I had to recently, so one of mine just got rejected from a journal um, and applying for a new journal now for it. Um, I had to cut out 1,300 words okay. from my manuscript. and So that was like I think it was a total of like 6,300 and I had to get okay. it down to 5,000. Yep. That took forever. <laughs> like yeah. it's crazy. <laughs> There's nothing more yeah. challenging than writing a short a short or yeah. shorter manuscript. Like yeah. You think oh, when you're an undergrad at uni, like oh, Like a 2,000-word oh, um, essay. I can't believe I've got to write 2,000 words. It's, it's like, nothing now. <laughs> Yeah, you'd be doing well to get your point across in 2,000 words. Yeah, you know? yeah, that's a short commentary. Take, and that's actually more <laughs> difficult than, it is. than writing a longer piece. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah it's, it's crazy. Um, yeah, I think mm. the, key, the key message there is that embrace the, the feedback. Mm, um, mm-hmm. and it's there to make you better. And, look, my advice as well is having been through it myself and sometimes it's easy to take comments personally, yep. um, you know, because some of the feedback will be quite direct, yep. like they won't sugarcoat it. You know, yeah. it, most people because they haven't got time to. They mm. just they literally have got a desk full of stuff they've got to get through. Yeah, yeah they're not going to be nice about it. They're not no. going to give you a compliment sandwich or whatever. They'll no. be like, no, this is wrong. Fix yeah, it. Yeah, <laughs> this is incorrect. Have you? You know, why yeah. don't you do this instead or wh- read this paper so you can fix it? Yeah, because yeah. you know, cause, you know th- these people are experts. That's why they're supervising you. Yeah, they haven't and got also time. Very busy. Yeah, yeah, they haven't got the time. Um, they're in demand. You know? Yeah. So yeah, take and even if it. Doesn't yeah? I would say don't read something and then react. Yeah. Read it, come back to it the next day, and it will actually make a lot more sense it to will. you after you've read it for the first time, and then you go back to it and read it again. You'll be like, okay, absolutely. I'm definitely not taking that personally. That that section is incorrect or yeah. doesn't it improve. You, so. But also, if you if you do, I, I I do find the rule of like sleep on it a very important one because mm. the next day you will have a very different perspective. Yeah. But there, there are also times where sometimes the feedback is not worded appropriately. Right. Um, at least uh, I've had that experience and it's um, 
you know, they can be very direct, but sometimes the way that they've worded it is directed at you rather than the work you've done. Um, And I think that's, it's very important to ask and not necessarily say to your supervisors or whoever is giving you feedback, um, whoever Mm. may be, you've done this, that makes me feel bad. Mm. You ask them why they said that. Um, And getting that extra feedback on why they've said a certain thing, even if it sounds personal, it probably wasn't meant to be. (laughs) Because, again, like people just, they write it out. You know, they want to give the feedback as as quickly and efficiently as possible. They write it out. They never mean it to be mean. And if they said it to you in person, they wouldn't say it the way they've written it. Exactly. That's that's just the fact. Yeah. Most disagreements happen because people have misunderstood each other. Exactly. And it can be very hard to not take it personally. Yeah. Um, You know, I think we've all done it. I've definitely done it. But yeah. yeah. Look, that's not to say that sometimes people do have a supervisor that's maybe, you know, maybe not Absolutely. behaving appropriately. Yeah, like, so, and in that case, it's a different scenario. But yeah, for the most part. I don't think part, that's the case for us. But no. yeah, there are, I've heard some nightmare stories about people that yeah. have had bad supervisors. Re- really, and, really challenging and whatever. Yeah. But yeah, I think, yeah, for the most part, you're all, you got to see that you're all on the same page. You're yeah. all, you all have the same kind of end goal in mind. You, you want to produce quality good research work. that's yeah. as good as it can possibly be. Yeah. Uh, and that's what their comments are aimed at. Absolutely. So, yeah. Anyway, hopefully that yeah. puts some it's people's minds at ease if they're going through that. Have you ever published um, uh, something and then found mistakes in it? I've been fortunate enough. My, my research career is still very young. Yeah. I've been fortunate enough that I haven't yet. Yeah, okay. I've heard some more experienced people say that they deliberately don't go back to stuff. Yeah. You know, they don't want to look at their old code. They don't yeah. want to look at, you know, old publications, et yeah. cetera, um, because that's a, a real fear. Yep. Um, but I've also seen people have to make corrections. Yeah. Post-publication. Yeah, yeah. I, I've definitely found mistakes in some of the things that I've published and usually they're minor so you mm-hmm. don't need to, to change them. Yeah. Um, so I, I do know that, that there, there are some things where like a number is off by 0.5 or yeah. something and I look at it and I'm like, God damn it, like yeah, it's okay. wrong and I know it's wrong but it's yeah. not worth it at that point because it doesn't make a difference that's... in the in the final thing. Yeah. Um, I think that's also something that um, for potential PhD students, like it's okay to make yeah. some mistakes, particularly during your PhD, right. even with the things that you publish. Yeah. Like pretty much every paper's got a mistake in it. I don't think I've come across a paper that doesn't have a mistake in it right. in some way, whether it's like a spelling mistake, a referencing error, yeah. um, tables misaligned. Sure. Um, yeah. yeah. I think it's always there. There's yeah. always something. I mean, even just copying something from one location to the other or transcribing something, mm-hmm. I think there's something like a 2% error rate for yeah. the average person, the average human. So, Absolutely. Yeah, so, mistakes happen. Yeah. Um, but, yeah. Just embrace I, it. <laughs> for people who, who do data analysis one thing that I've found is that your systems for double-checking mm, get better as you absolutely. do it more. Because just analyse things two different ways and make sure that your your total column adds up the same mm-hmm. each time, you know, just a your simple percentages thing. are actual percentages, yeah. yeah. Just, 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 <laughs> just try doing things a couple of different ways just to make sure you're getting the same kind of overall yeah. results and you're not miscounting and definitely. that sort of thing. But, yeah, there's, there's no... It takes longer while you're doing it, but it is definitely worth it. Is it is worth it for your peace of mind. You don't want to be waking up at 2 in the morning Go, freaking out. Oh, God. Out. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You know, yeah. The, you've just got your first publication in the, the New England Journal of Medicine and it's, yeah. you know, the ta- table <laughs> it's one's wrong. wrong. <laughs> <laughs> oh, could you imagine? <laughs> yeah, so oh, we might um, move on to some of the questions that you've got. Yeah, yeah. Topics so you've got there. something that's kind of... I've found very entertaining over my my PhD um, experience uh, the questions that you get from your friends or mm. your family. Um, and there's a lot of articles online basically saying what you shouldn't ask a PhD student. Mm-hmm. Um, so I have a couple of those questions and I think we should answer them. Okay. Um, because in my mind, some of them you absolutely shouldn't right. ask. Um but some of them, I think it depends on the person. Um, so, so these are my questions that you shouldn't ask a PhD student. So, okay. Craig, how much longer do you have to complete your PhD? Yeah, that's a good one. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So the answer is as long as it takes. Absolutely. Yeah, <laughs> yeah like and even now, um, you know, I have my end date 
technically. Mm-hmm. Um, people ask me, when am I going to finish my PhD? A lot of people don't realise that your submission date is not the end. Mm. Um, people want to know when you're going to submit, but they don't realise that there's another six months yeah. of work after that. After that, yeah. There's, it's Yeah, and that date of submission is not set in stone. Mm-hmm. Um, and being about four weeks to six weeks out, that's a very scary thing to be asked because every time I'm just like, oh, my God, it's it's approaching. It's yeah. so close. So at the beginning, totally fine. At yeah. the end, very scary question. So yeah. Yeah, okay. Um, yeah. Do, you, do you have the same kind I, of feeling I agree. about I, it? I get yeah. asked that by a lot of people. Yeah. Um, and, I, yeah, often you have to go into an explanation as to it depends on this and it depends on that and, yeah, mm-hmm. I think... There, there obviously is pressure to get it submitted as soon as possible. Yeah, you know, from different areas. But it's not the end, like, but it isn't. It's just the beginning. Yeah. That's the way you've got to look at it. And you know, sometimes you might have to resist that pressure a bit. Absolutely. You know, from from whether it's supervisors or other or friends or people family or, that want yeah, or employers. If you've you know, it's part yeah. of your employment or whatever. But yeah, you just need to say, well, it'll be submitted when it's ready. Mm. Yeah, I'm not going to mm. submit it before it's ready. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Um, yeah, so, yeah, I think it, it depends on the person, but yeah. it is a, it can be a very tough question to answer. I yeah, think. and I think it can cause anxiety because yes. it, it sort of implies that you should have a, an end date and that and maybe you're going to miss that end date or, you know. Yeah, yeah, yeah the, it applies a pressure that's not needed, mm-hmm. I think. Um, okay, second question. So what exactly do you do all day? Yep. That's a good one. Yeah, yeah. Don't mind it. <laughs> My answer to that is I don't know. <laughs> yeah, I don't keep a journal. No. So I couldn't tell you exactly. Yeah. Uh, but it would vary from day to day. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I think this, it kind of sums up that people just don't know mm. what a PhD is and it's different depending on what subject you're doing. That's right. Yeah. And, and at what stage of the PhD Absolutely. you're in. Absolutely. Uh, yeah, it's people, very different. Some people collect their own data for a PhD. They do yeah. interviews or, you know, do surveys or whatever yeah. themselves and that's what their PhD is based on. And so obviously if you're at that stage, that's what you're doing all day. Mm. But then when you get to the data analysis stage or the writing stage, those are the things you're doing, you know. Mm, mm-hmm. so, it changes yeah. every day. But, yeah, and also people are living their lives at the same time. You know? Yeah. They might have kids, they might have a full-time job and they're doing a PhD part-time. Yeah. Absolutely. Who knows what. Yeah. So yeah. I'd say that the answer to that is it depends. Depends. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And yeah. I, I think uh, the, the kind of understanding is that it is actually a job. Mm. Like there are... There are things that you have to do to get that job done and it changes yeah. every day and it's not just the same thing every yeah. single day. Um, Correct. Yeah. I'd, I'd, I'd agree with that. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, all right. This was this was an interesting one, I find, um, because um, I have a very clear answer to it. But um, what do you what do you do with your time off? Like, do you have any time off? Uh, you know, do you do you go through the university holidays and do you get those holidays? Uh, and what do you do? <laughs> what are you going to do? Yeah, which is I think it's a valid question because you technically you're enrolled as a student. Yep. And you know, if you're an undergrad student, you're doing semesters mm-hmm. and you get a semester break in the mm-hmm. middle of the year. And you can do whatever the hell you want. Then you get a Christmas end of year break, which yep. goes for a bit longer. I think it's two or three months. Yeah, I wouldn't know now. <laughs> yeah. But, no, like I think it goes back to your point before, a PhD is more like a job it is, than, yeah. than studying, if you like. So whilst you're doing a PhD, you have the option to take some units, yep. to, you know, that's included in the PhD program um, and that they are done during semester. Mm. Your actual PhD work is just like a job. Yeah. You, you, yeah, if you take time off, extended amounts of time off, that's just going to make your PhD take a bit. That extended time longer. Yeah. One of the the best things that I did when I was um, starting off is telling myself to treat it like a nine-to-five job Mm -hmm. um, rather than a project that I can work at any time. And from the beginning, what I did was I did nine-to-five every Mm day um, and I didn't do anything on my project outside of those hours. And I know a lot of PhD students don't follow those rules, um, mm-hmm. but it made it very clear for friends and family that this is when I'm working. 
mm-hmm. um, and I'm free on weekends or after work. Yeah. I can't just like yeah. take a day off whenever I want because whenever it's a like job it. um, and yeah. I need to spend nine to five on it in order to get it done by mm-hmm. the, the time that I'm, yeah. I'm meant to technically. Yeah. Um, even then, you know, now being close to the end, that's no longer a case and it's thinking about it every minute of every day. Uh, <laughs> yeah. um, but it's not a standard degree. It's, it's not, not, no. You're not a student anymore. No, you're actually. It an, is a job. You're a, you're a kind of an employee. Yeah. 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 No, I've, I mean, I, the only point of reference I really have is when I was finishing my law degree in my final year, I did my honours thesis. Mm, mm-hmm. And I was working full time in research. Yeah. So that was my day job, if you like, before I started a PhD. And I had to use annual leave to get my honours thesis done mm. because I couldn't treat that as a nine to five job and it needed to be, you know, I needed a good week or two. Yeah. Uh, and I did end up probably writing my honours thesis a bit late at night and that sort of thing. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so I got closer to the time. Um, but that was just because I already had a nine to five job and that was, I was choosing to do something extra, extra. out of those hours. Yeah. But, yeah, my PhD, I've been fortunate enough and I think you have as well mm. that we have been funded, you know, to do a PhD full-time. Yep. Um, and so we are able to treat it as a as yep. a structured sort of job. Absolutely. And like, I guess a lot of students wouldn't be able to do that. Yeah. That, yeah. Obviously it goes true. out the window for someone who's doing it part-time with yep. a full-time job on the side or the other way around. Yep. Um, but, yeah, I think if it is your main focus, that's pretty good advice because – like anything, it can kind of take over your life mm. if you let it, you know, work until 2 in the morning and this sort of thing. Yeah, And it I can. definitely don't operate well like that. I, no, I, I can't. I, what I would write at 2 in the morning probably wouldn't get used. So. <laughs> yeah, pretty much. Yeah, <laughs> yeah I, I'm exactly the same. I was never one to, to start and finish an yeah. assignment the night before, so why should I do the same for this but, yeah, and I don't yeah. think I'm giving anything away when I say we probably both have a wide range of interests yeah. outside of what we do for work. Absolutely. So, you know, we do like to do other things as well um, and I think that probably benefits our work in the long term. Mm, I agree. Um, but, yeah, I have heard stories of um, colleagues who, you know, they're getting towards the end of their PhD and they basically close themselves off from yeah. the rest of society for however many weeks yeah. um, and yeah. don't do not do anything else. Yeah, pretty much. <laughs> but I don't feel like I'm going to be in that position. Mm. And I don't well, think, that's good. Yeah. yeah. I, I didn't think I was going to be in that position either and at the moment it is a little bit like that so I have had mm-hmm. to like stop a lot of things to try and get basically just get writing done. Mm-hmm. But that's also because I don't like writing. So for mm-hmm. me it takes forever to write anything because yeah. I just don't want to do it. So, <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. yeah. All right. Okay. My last question, yep. and I think this is the most common one, and it can be very frustrating um, and I know that I've had a lot of feelings about this question is when people ask me to tell them about my research. Okay. And a lot of the time... It, it, you know, it'll be like a casual conversation. They'll be like, oh, you're a PhD student, so what are you researching? Uh, and it's it's an interesting question because I love talking about what I'm doing. Mm-hmm. I love talking about my research. I would love to get into the nitty-gritty of it. But in those social situations, they're not looking for the nitty-gritty. They're no. looking for a one sentence for them to go, oh, that's cool. Yeah. Um, and I, I don't particularly like doing that. So okay. when people ask me that question, I'll be like, I am in cardiovascular disease. I look at trends of hospitalizations over time. Mm-hmm. And then if people want to know more, then it's like a three-hour conversation. Yeah. Um, but most of the time they, they don't yeah. ask. Yeah, I mean, a good way. Frustrating. Yeah. A good way to sort of head off a question like that is just to start describing the stats that you're using. And, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but no, I think you're right. Like there's, there's the elevator pitch. There is. And then there's obviously for someone who might be more interested and um, have a you know, greater understanding of the methods and mm. the data, then obviously you can go into more detail. But, yeah, I think most people are just looking for that, oh, yeah, that's the that box That's the box that you're sitting in. It's cardiovascular yeah. or it's prisoners or yeah. it's, you know, mental health and or whatever. I think particularly for, for my project it also kind of shows the people that ask that conversation in casual conversations, a lot of the time they don't actually listen to what you say because for me what I found is I go I'm working on cardiovascular disease I look at trends of hospitalizations and people go oh so are you wanting to be a medical doctor Mm. 
And no, like, no, no I, I'm not. It's nothing to do with it, yeah. like being a medical doctor, my, my stuff. Like it's in the health field. Yeah. It's in a very like medical field, but I am not a physician Yeah. and I'm not going to be. And so there's a lot of frustration with that in that mm-hmm. I tell people what I'm doing and they're not actually listening. Um, so I then just don't talk about it. Yeah. And I would love to talk about my research more. I'd love to talk about the statistical analysis and there yeah. are some people that I can do that with, but there's there, not many. There's a time and place absolutely, and, a, and an audience for that. Um, yeah. But, yeah, I think that probably is a, a good take-home take message mm. is if you're doing a PhD, come up with your elevator pitch. Absolutely. That's your your quick 30 seconds. A hundred percent. Yeah. Get, get your two sentences yeah. of what your project's about yeah. and that will be enough for most people. So yeah. you can either dodge that question if you want to, um, people will get enough information out of it. Um, but also if you want to talk about it, then just talk yeah. about it. And if people don't want to listen, they'll walk away. That's like <laughs> find the people that want to listen to what you're doing. Yeah. And yeah, having that circle is really important. Absolutely. Um, yeah. Okay. Well, I think that's, Probably brings us to the end of this. I think so. Hopefully, somewhat informative. Yeah, discussion or just for like a people. perspective on on kind of where we're at yeah. at the moment. Um, yeah, you hear yeah. us. You hear us asking everybody else about their work and experience on the podcast. So, occasionally, we feel like it's it's important for us to talk about it as well. <laughs> yeah, just to let you know who who it is that you're listening to yeah. each week or each couple of weeks. Um, all right. So, if you do have any questions or comments on anything you've heard in this episode or any any other episode that you've listened to where can people get in touch with us Courtney so you can uh, tweet us at health means what so uh, go ahead and use that tag us and things um, or you can email us at uh, meaning of health at outlook.com so yeah we'd, we'd love to chat with uh, people who listen to our episodes if you've got any comments or feedback or mm. um, want to tell us your PhD story if you're doing one or research story or, yeah. or anything like that we would love to hear it uh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, we would like to um, have more PhD students on. Yeah, because absolutely. It's really interesting. Yeah, to hear, definitely. Hear everyone's different experience. Yeah, excellent. All right. Well, thanks very much, Courtney. Mm, thank you. And we will be with you all soon. The Meaning of Health podcast is produced with the support of the School of Population and Global Health and the Education Enhancement Unit at the University of Western Australia. The podcast is produced by Craig Cumming and Courtney Webber with music by Craig Cumming.